It's show 154 of the RIM Pro Report today, Dennis Barnett and the latest industry news. The show is sponsored by our good friends at O'Neill Software. Last week at their partner conference in Huntington Beach, California, O'Neill announced their newest innovation, O'Neill Cloud. As it sounds, this is a completely cloud-based service replacing traditional software, IT infrastructure, and all the hassles that come with it. O'Neill Cloud is 100% web-based and only requires internet access and a browser. This is pretty cool stuff and another industry first from O'Neill Software. And if you're interested and want to know more, you can do so by visiting them at O'NeillSoft.com. I got some wisdom for you today. Don't sweat the petty things and don't pet the sweaty things. Welcome to the Rim Pro Report, the one and only weekly broadcast for the Rim support services industry, bustling with news, views, and the latest updates. This show is full of interesting information. So take notes. Now here's your host, Tom Adams. Hello, my friends. Hello. Just called to say hello. I hate it when a pesky Neil Diamond song gets stuck in my head. You can thank me later for that. It will be stuck in yours the rest of the day now. Greetings, Rim Nation. How are things in your world? What's going on? Lest you think I'm now pulling your leg, check out the calendar. See, it's almost the end of September. Time just is smoking by, and it feels like we just did the end of August show. Um, and if you've got some kind of formula for slowing life down, please let me know because it's going way too fast for me. Hey, today I'm going to provide you a replay interview with Dennis Barnett, the CEO of Oasis. This has to be one of my favorite interviews over the last year, and some of the things Dennis shared are definitely worth hearing again. Or if you missed the show the first time in its entirety, this show is worth the time to sit and listen to or drive and listen to, put it on your iPod, your Android phone. But the thing is, listen to this interview because it's got lots and lots of great information for you today. So uh, that's, that's coming up. So before we do get to that, though, I want to get you caught up on the latest industry news. Iron Mountain just released the results of a survey of 400 IT professionals at small to mid-sized companies. The results of the survey show that almost all of the IT professionals use or at least plan to use magnetic tape cartridges as part of their backup strategy. They like it because of its cost-effectiveness, longevity, and ease of use. Another interesting finding in the survey is that 94% of the respondents will use Use backup tape as a part of a hybrid data backup strategy, a hybrid strategy. Uh, hybrid is really where it is these days. You can't just, or people just aren't backing up to tape as much as that is a wonderful, reliable media to do so on. They're making it a part of a hybrid process. Uh, along with that, security is the biggest concern, followed by ease of retrieval of said backup. So very interesting stuff and especially helpful if you're involved in uh, media vaulting, data protection, those kind of services. Looks like tape is not going away despite evidence and some concern to the contrary. ReadSoft North America has named RhinoDocs of Chicago its partner for automated invoice processing solutions. Justin Ullman, the president of RhinoDocs, suggested that his company will implement the ReadSoft invoice processing capabilities into their suite of customer services. Services. So congratulations to Justin and the team at RhinoDocs. You know, I need to get him on the show soon. 
Earlier this year at the PRISM conference, Justin did a talk about his bucket theory of services, and I thought it was brilliant, absolutely brilliant stuff. And I'd love to have him on the show to talk about the pretty cool stuff he's doing. So I'm going to try and make that happen in the next uh, few weeks or months. And finally, for a recap of the bevy of industry events in the next little while, let's go through them over at Nade, October 2nd. Nate is going to hold a high-tech HIPAA effective date response strategies webinar. And then a few days later on the 9th, they're going to hold a downstream data coverage webinar. Shred School is going to be in San Francisco on the 16th and 17th of October. Now, if we jump over to the PRISM end of the uh, industry, today and tomorrow is the Data Protection Conference in Dallas, October 14th and 15th. Uh, Fundamentals of Records Management will be held in Mumbai, India. The PRISM Latin Latin America Forum will be held in Cancun from October 17th through 19th. Then Nate and Prism work together to co-host the European Information Management Conference in Amsterdam from November 10th through 12th. That's going to be a cool event. Uh, I'm actually going to be taking RIMPRO on the road. and We're going to be interviewing the CEOs of some of the major major corporations in the rim world rim and shred world that's going to be really cool you're going to get to hear some of their strategies what they're thinking and then as a group we get to uh, discuss how how that makes sense in the rest of our uh, worlds and and how business is being done in europe so uh, mark that date on your calendar um because that's going to be a great show. Finally, the Data Protection Association will hold their annual conference in Oakland from October 11th through 13th. And you can check out all the related details on the related member sites or our industry websites and get details from there. That's all the news I have for this week. If you have anything to report, let me know so I can share it. Alrighty then, I'm going to queue up the Dennis Barnett interview replay. Hold tight while I do. Dennis Barnett is CEO of Oasis Group, headquartered in Dublin, Ireland. He is also the founder of Access Information Management. He has a long and storied career in the RIM industry. Dennis is one of the leading movers and shakers, in my opinion, in the RIM industry. Dennis, are you there? I'm here, Tom. Hey, welcome to the show. I'm really glad to have you on the show. I've been watching your career for a long time, and I believe that you you just tend to make things happen. And I've always wanted to have you on the show, so I'm, I'm glad you're with us. So let's head back, way back to what I think was the start of your RIM industry, and you started to work in the records management industry. Tell me how you ended up getting into the industry in the first place, what you were doing before you got there, and maybe some of the early experiences you had at the first uh, records management company you were with. Okay. I have to go a long way back, but I also throw out a lot of names people should know but back in 94, I believe it was, yeah. I was recruited to join uh, First American Records Management Farm uh, by Gordon Clark. Uh, he was at the time CEO of Farm, uh, but Farm was owned by uh, Tom Bird and Ken Saxon, very early uh, people in the industry. Oh, yeah. And, oh, yeah, been there for a long time. I actually was hired to replace Jim Teskey, who had joined O'Neill at the time. There's two other names in the industry. Yeah. And to work with uh, Terry Cohen, uh, who was doing a different division for Farm at the time. So I actually joined Farm to be the vice president of operations and run Southern California. 
Um, those are the those are the fast moving days back in the mid nineties. Wow. And so, what were you doing before you arrived at Farm? I mean, you you said you were recruited, but how did they know to recruit you? Were you just out looking for a job? What were you doing? Sure, I was on the street corner looking for a job. No, uh, Gordon Clark was actually my supervisor, as you would say, that my manager at an Australian-owned corporation in the distribution and the courier industry. So I actually was running Southern California for that company called Maine Nicholas, who actually was also in the rim industry in Australia. Really? But I wasn't in it at that time, but I knew of it. And our group actually did deliveries for some rim companies in Southern California and Seattle area. So I, I was aware of what the industry was about, per se. Yeah. So when Gordon asked me if I'd be interested in joining him at Farm, I was actually very interested. So you were in Southern California, though, with Farm? Correct. I was in Southern California. Farm was made up of, at that time, three divisions, one in Northern California, San Francisco, Bay Area, a smaller one in Sacramento, and then Southern California. So I ran Southern California, and then after I joined over time, we had also started up in Seattle, and actually our primary contract there was for Microsoft. And then we acquired a company in Portland, Oregon. And then uh, shortly after that, uh, the owners decided to uh, sell the business. And who did they sell to? Well, I think you know the history on this, but uh, it was to Iron Mountain. <laughs> oh, okay. So it was, okay. It was uh, actually the close date was April 1st, 1999. And we truly thought, uh, well, actually I knew about it, of course, but uh, some people truly thought it was a, uh, a joke being April 1st. Uh, it was not a joke. Uh, we literally, it was a very quick acquisition. And I had moved over just that same day. I had moved over to join Iron Mountain and be the general manager in Southern California. Okay, so you then become an employee of Iron Mountain and run Southern California for them. Yes, it was a little different than that. Obviously, I knew before the transaction, and I actually had not planned to join Iron Mountain, but I was asked to come meet with David Wendell, the president at that time of Iron Mountain. Yeah. And when I went over for the meeting, a funny thing happened on the way to the meeting. Uh, I met a lady who's now my wife, Pamela, uh, on that day. She actually was the HR person, or one of the HR people, there on the West Coast for Iron Mountain. Really? And she uh, greeted me at the door, took me in, introduced me to David, and I asked her to marry me two months later. Two so I months? I stuck around. Two months later? <laughs> I did. She declined. She declined. <laughs> <laughs> So how long were you with Iron Mountain then? So I was with them for about two years. Uh, after Pamela and I got married, uh, it was apparent you know, one of us had to leave Iron Mountain. Where there were some conflicts just where our work was. And, but we both decided to leave. And so uh, we started off uh, looking in other directions, decided we wanted to move the family somewhere out of California for a while. And so after two years, I actually was called by uh, Jim Teske again, of all people, small industry, right? Yeah. And he asked me to come out and talk to a company in Florida to run operations for them. He had joined them a year before to run sales and marketing. Okay, so you you then uh, proceed from the West Coast with Iron Mountain to the East Coast. Uh, tell me a little bit about that journey and who was involved and what, what happened in that whole process. Sure. It was Archive America. It was a, it was a pretty short run there. As I, being there and being the entrepreneur I knew I was, I quickly learned that I really wanted to build a business based on, on service and integrity for myself. And, and although Jim and I did a few acquisitions, we helped you know, Archive America get a bigger footprint, both Jim and I uh, left to do some other things. Right. And uh, as you know, Jim now is 
the owner with uh, Record Max, and yeah. he's very active in the industry. And we're still good friends. Yeah. So that short period of time, it seems to me like Farm and Iron Mountain and Archive America build in something in those experiences that starts creating this vision. You just talked about that entrepreneurial sense about you. So tell me what you were thinking as you start getting towards 2004 and this entrepreneurial passions burning inside you what's going on in your head what are you thinking what's the plan tell me a little Mm -hmm. bit about what's sort of happening well i mean to be very frank i was going to get out of the industry again uh that was my idea i had a couple business plans and i was looking for some investors and looking in a non-related business and wanting to move back to the West Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had meetings with several investors, or potential investors, I should say, and, and one of them, Lusitonic Partners, although they were interested in backing me on a business, they had a young numbers cruncher, an analyst named John Chindo. Right. He was very interested in the rim business and wanted some specific data about it. And I helped him on that, and, and during that period, I decided that I actually was going to do a search fund. And the search fund, I obtained some backers for me, do a search fund and started with Housatonic was the very first investor in that. And it was interesting because Housatonic at the time, they were a primary investor, but not uh, the largest investor in farm when it was sold. And at that time, they were also an investor in A.J. Wasserstein's company, Archives One, oh, which yeah, Archives was sold One. in Tire right. Mountain in 2007. Right. So, I mean, if you put all the data together, it's really, like I said, it's a small industry. And I had opportunities to go and do a few different things. But I, in the end, decided to do a search fund in this industry and get my own investors to try and back me to, to start another company in this industry. So when um, you say my just, dream, just so good. Uh, well, just to clarify, when you say a search fund, what's that? Just so I'm clear. Well, a search fund, I mean, I don't know if you could Wikipedia this. You could probably Wikipedia anything. A search fund is something that you, you get individual backers. And those people, or companies, you know, Housatonic could do it as a company or an right. individual could do it, they put up a certain amount of money to you over a certain period of time, one or two years, to find a business that you will run as a CEO. For that money that they give you to run this search fund, they have rights. Those rights are to allow them to invest in this new company. Obviously, there's no predetermined valuations yet because we don't know what the company is or right. its size. So it's a very high-risk investment. Uh, there, are, there are people out here that they invest a lot of money into search funds, but it's very high-risk money. And so for that high risk, they get certain step-up privileges in equity when the equity is actually uh, divvied up upon the first transaction. Got That's it. what okay. happened. Okay. I had five investors that had backed me in the search fund. Okay. So uh, when I cut you off there, you were saying that you have this search fund, but you had a dream. There was something, you were going that direction, and I cut you off. Sure. Well, you, you'd ask the question, uh, really, what was in my mind, and really it was just to build a, a small regional company around good people that I could run from San Francisco. It was interesting. I chose a place more than I chose an industry. Huh. And yeah, the reality was I never really fell far from the rim roots that I had been in, and I ended up acquiring Record Express in Livermore, California in December of 2004. And then during this search of, of trying to find companies, I, I also added new investors from my past. Uh, Tom and Ken, who we just spoke from, joined me as investors when I did that first transaction. Uh, it was an interesting call. Yeah. I think it was five years later. And then Ken joined the board. And at that time, I, I 
still wanted to just keep it small and regional with no centralized you know, call centers or large corporate holdings. I believe that I could give great service to clients by allowing you know, local service by local GMs and account managers. So that was really the initial catalyst. Obviously, the search fund turned into bigger investment in order to buy Record Express, and Record Express was the first acquisition you made. Were you already access at that point, or was was this just an acquisition that was still uncertain as to where you're going? Or you were pretty clear by the time you bought Record Express that it was going to be access, and you were in a much bigger plan at that point. Sure. It was access. I mean, I set up, when you do a search fund, you set up a company. I, I was a company. Oh, okay. I, I was the, the sole owner of Access CIG LLC, Access, Access Corporate Information Group. And so there was a there was a company with the name of Access on it. It wasn't Access Information Management yet. We did that change later. Okay. But search fund is only until you find the first acquisition. After that, it's no longer a search fund. You, you either pay off or join forces with your investors, right. one of the two. All my investors stayed on board, and wow. uh, we went forward. And, and what I didn't know at the time is I'd meet Rob Alston, another name in the industry, everyone knows at this point, and his partners from Hawaii. They wanted to sell, but I really wasn't sure I wanted to be in Hawaii, as it's a, it was a very local market with local needs, and I'd be 3,000 miles away. Yeah. So I knew I needed a great manager, and this would be now my second acquisition, and to me, high risk. I, suddenly, I was double in size, but half of it was going to be so far away, I, I wouldn't get a close view of it, and I really needed to make a good decision. And looking back, on it was one of the better decisions, if not the best, I did. Rob and I became, um, I hired, I bought the company, hired him. He said he was going to leave within a year, and uh, I said, mm, we'll see where it goes. <laughs> and over time, his parents and Rob and I shared a lot of the same vision, and Rob and I were interested in partnering up doing different businesses, potentially, and even other acquisitions in the rim industry. And after a couple more years, Rob and I actually became business partners in Access and other deals. So and I think uh, the rest is history so far. Yeah. So going back to that vision, and I, and I think that connection with Rob uh, obviously was a significant one. But from that early stage, was the goal always to be an acquisition company? Or was there a reason you didn't get into starting sort of greenfield startup kind of stuff? Or, or was that always the intent? Just go out and buy for the purpose of building the company quickly? Well, there's, really, there's two parts to that. I mean, the, the first answer is very quick. It was always going to be an acquisition company. It okay. was never going to be greenfield. Um, but keep in mind, originally when it was set up, it was, it was to be a regional player. And, you know, the goals of getting to 15 or $20 million in revenue was really what were outlined. Right. And, you know, that's, that was the goals up front. And then as we started building the team and the company, and, you know, those are, those are good times between 2004 and 2007. It was easier to borrow money, a lot easier than it is now. Yeah. And we decided we could, we could actually fold in and do a really good job bringing in other companies to the access group and... You know, through the integration of, of our procedures and, and our culture, uh, we can you know, make them better company, per se, and then we'd be bigger overall. That continued to roll, and I recall even on you know the last few years, the amount of acquisitions just kind of kept going and going and going, and access is getting bigger, it seems to me, than your original dream. <laughs> And, and, and then in 2009, a strange thing happens. You fly across the pond to do Oasis Group. So what 
what was going on in your mind then and what was the transition or what was ultimately the goal of this new venture? Because it seems to me that Access was just poised to really go go big, really big, and you go fly off somewhere else. Well, it was, it was a little earlier in 2009, and it was, it was more planned than people realized, but it really wasn't planned for me necessarily. Um, so late 2007, somewhere in 2008, uh, Rob and I were still working together very well, and the company was doing very well. Uh, then John Chendo, again, who was working at Housatonic Partners, yeah. uh, and was one of our board members, met with me and asked about joining Access. And it was interesting because I, I, he was the person I actually needed, at least that role that he could fill. But I was concerned about him and Rob working together. They didn't really they met each other a few times, but only at board meetings. But I, I thought they could work very well together. I hooked them up together and, and we started chatting about what we could do as uh, three of us. And ultimately, John also became the third partner in the group that I had formed with Rob. And we decided as a group that we'd like to enter Europe. And we all looked at it, uh, different visits, different things. It was actually what most people don't really know. It really wasn't decided that I was going to move to Europe until uh. after the transaction was done. Uh. It was just, it was, it, at one point it was Rob, and, and at one point it was me, and it was even John at one point. But it got down to the end of it, and we just looked at how things were working, where they were working. I promoted Rob to be CEO of Access, and uh, decided to move my family to Europe. Wow. And, uh, it was, again, a good decision. It's worked out very well for Access, as I'm still an investor and a board member there, and as Rob and John are over in Oasis in Europe. Right. So Oasis is really built on the same premise that you build Access, right, which is sort of slow and steady acquisition and build the build the the group as a larger group on an ongoing basis. And it seems to me just watching that uh, you're doing the same kind of thing there. We are. It's a, it's a little slower. It's actually a lot slower, mainly due to the economy and, and bank lending that goes on in Europe right now. Right. But if you... If you look at our operating procedures, our systems, our accounting packages, our KPI reporting, they are either identical or within 90% of each other. Oh, okay. We try and share share ideas with each other still. As I said, we I sit on both boards. Uh, I'm CEO of one, Rob's CEO of the other. John sits on both boards. We you know, we try and, and, and not recreate the wheel. What, what has happened is the... People that went with me over to Europe to be investors were investors in Access, and they are now no longer investors in Access. Uh, we did a transaction and a full restructuring in summer of 2011, just over a year ago. Right. And so those investors uh, are out, but we replace them with new investors, with Summit Partners, which are great investors and great partners with us. Continued the Access growth with Rob being the CEO and, and John working on the acquisition side. Well, it's really kind of cool. I, you know, as, as I've had the opportunity to watch you, you've built two pretty substantial businesses over the last eight years. And uh, I think underlying it has to be a belief, a, a way of thinking that is foundational for what you do and how you kind of attack business and life. So I guess I'm trying to find out what, what drives that. Why is it that some can labor for eight years and end up with a single record center. And at the same time, someone like you has built an international presence, two different companies. Um, what, what drives that thinking? Is it just this sense in you that, that anything's possible? How, how do you think about business? 
Well, you're, you're, you're talking about beliefs, I think, more than uh, just my style. But yeah, I do. I do. I do believe that almost anything is possible. Uh, I believe that anyone can grow up and, and be anything or anyone they want to be. And I, I grew up in an environment that that was very open. And you know, my parents owned a couple of small printing companies, and I watched them do some good things and some really bad things. Right. Anyone who's worked with me for any period of time know that I, I have these denisisms and the way I do things, and I, I really don't change them much. But I will change them if it's the right thing. I, I, I guess the, the five top management things for me is I, I, I try and, and look at the five things and repeat them over and over and over again, and, and not necessarily any order of importance. Um, you know, the people, number one, surround yourself with great people. Yeah, I don't have a problem whatsoever mentoring or training staff. I can't change their attitudes or their work ethics. I learned that a long time ago. I look for people with good insights and great drive, and I pay them very well. Right. I also I look for people who make it personal and care about who they work for and what they stand for. So as, as it's often said, you know, uh, train your staff to take your job. Right. I do. I want to train staff to take my job so that I can trust that, the, that there'll be another position down the line for myself. And, and Rob is a great example for that. Yeah. Number two would be the vision. Um, you need to know what you look like and what you want to be at the very end. So when I started Access, it was I wanted to be a $20 million regional rim company and be very good at what I did and very well liked and appreciated by my customers. Right. And I shared that with everyone. I, I believe you, you have to tell everyone that if there's anyone on your team that doesn't believe in that vision, hey, don't bring them on or, right. or uh, try and replace them at some point. Because you have to share the vision. And yeah. Everyone needs to know what that goal is. Yeah. Uh, number three, I, I call it feed the need. There's three things that have needs every every month, every day, every week. Uh, that's you know, my customers, my team members, and uh, the company. Customers need good service and value, plus new service offerings or, or new products. The team members need to feel valued and important while being able to achieve their own goals, whether it's personal or professional. Company needs profits to grow and invest in new offerings and people and technology. But I look at this every month, hmm. you know, and what, you know, where am I dropping? Where am I? Where am I failing? Where should I pick up and, and feed that need? Yeah, these three groups. Yeah. So, number four is just open book management. I'm a big believer in open book financial management. I don't just share the vision with the team. I share the financials. Um, I'm known to measure many parts of the business and ask people just to measure and prove each level they have influence over or control over. So how, how far does that go? Open book management is, you know, is a term that's been thrown around and you say you, you open the book. So are you clearly defining to front level drivers, let's say, that we're, we've achieved $7 million in revenue and our goal is 10 or mm -hmm. right down to profits and those kind of things? Sure. Um, okay. I, I, let me back. It depends on depends on where you're at and how how well trained your team is. Back okay. um, at Farm, it was every single employee. We we're small enough to be able to do that. At Oasis, at this time, it, it's still just the management above. And okay. Um, and I believe, and I don't want to speak for Rob where he's at with it these days, but I, I believe he's down into all supervisors and uh, key staff up. So he's got a wow a wide group of people he's talking to, but it is, it's, it's literally the financials to profitability to uh, what it's supposed to be for the month and for the year and wow. the long-term horizon. 
So, you know, you can have a, a driver supervisor. He knows that I'm supposed to make X amount of money in that branch that month. And we try and uh, work together to achieve that. Right. Okay. So people, vision, feed the need, open book management, number five. And, and the last one, it comes out of the same area. It's at least uh, from Jack Stacks, a great game of business. He, he says it this way. His phrase is share the wealth. I've had that in my mindset and my work ethic for a long time. Maybe not in that exact phrase, but, you know, I'm not greedy. Hmm. I believe you can be very successful and, and share in the gains with the people that helped you along the way with your vision. Yeah. Uh, this can be anything from great benefits, compensation, ownership. Uh, most people just don't want to give up anything until they know what they have, yeah. i.e. owners. Most owners don't want to. And I believe you can share along the way. Hmm. Uh, it's just my style also of getting investors. I don't need to be totally in control. You need to know who your partners are, obviously, and you right. have to have good partners. But right. I believe that if there's enough, you know, share the wealth. That's what you should do. Hmm. Those are probably my top five. There's obviously... Uh, that drives me. Those five things drive me. There's yeah. obviously things within the RIM industry that are important to us when we look at acquisitions, uh, but I think that's a whole other subject matter. Yeah, yeah. So you, you talked about people as your number one, and not necessarily in that order, but people was an important thing. And I, you know, as I look at Access, and I realize you've acquired through the years, and I've met some people at conferences from Oasis now, but you, you tend to hire some pretty cool people, some pretty solid people. And you've told us what's important in terms of what you're looking for, but how do you go about finding those? How, how do you discover great people to work for you or with you, maybe more specifically? Well, yeah, I, I'd say with me. Um, Finding them is usually the hardest part, there's no doubt. I, I luckily have known quite a few good people in the right time to be able to hire them. But referrals are... Are, um, are the best way we find people. There's so many in, in the access side. Uh, you know, besides my business partners, Rob and John, I've, you know, I've hired David Gessinger, who I'd worked with before, Mike Schwab, who I'd worked with before, Robert Cummings, who I'd worked with before. I try and pick out people that I know share the same visions. And I think we've done a good job overall. I mean, one of the things we do is, is we would actually make most positions a group decision. Hmm. Uh, at Oasis, if we're looking for a new director of finance, I'll get together the, the key people that will be involved above and below that person, and we'll look at the top five applicants together. We'll interview them together individually. I, I think getting everyone involved to understand why we're hiring this person, and what we expect of this person, and how we measure this person's success is important so they can help them come on board. A, a great example... Um, well, it's not directly related to me. Nate Campbell at Access, uh, right. Rob hired him recently and then promoted him to COO. I mean, in the end, it was Rob's decision, don't get me wrong. But he, you know, I know personally spoke to the board of directors, key executives, uh, other people around who would be working with Nate. And he wasn't worried about Nate's skills. He wanted to get everyone's input on how they would work together and how he would, and they would measure success for Nate. Right. So it's, that's... That's an example of things we would do at Access and Oasis. Yeah. Maybe taking a, a slightly different tack here, uh, the industry continues to evolve, the greater rim industry. And if, if you had the luxury of a crystal ball and could accurately predict the future, what do you think the industry looks like 10 years from now? I thought you might ask that. I, I don't have a crystal ball. I've been asked this several times. I, um, I've often said that I'm, I'm not 
worried about paper going away in my work life. Uh, not worried about until a generation of kids grow up without paper in school and still have paper in the office. But I'd be lying if I don't see a shift starting. Uh, I have four boys in school now I have twins that are senior infants, which is kindergarten yeah. in Ireland, and two in college in the U.S. Uh, but I'm, I'm still amazed at how much paper at those two extreme levels of schooling produce. Yeah. Although most of what they learn is still online. And I, I just, I don't, I don't quite get it, but, you know, that being said, I, I saw a couple things recently that I'll share with you. As small as they are, they're just they're always interesting. I got off an airplane the other day in, in London, and as many people, you know, oh, you're walking out, there's always someone holding a sign for Mr. Smith or Mr. Jones to be picked up by a driver, and, and there's three guys holding iPads that have the, the passengers' names that they were picking up. Oh. Uh, no longer a piece of paper, they're just holding an iPad. Right. <laughs> I was stopped uh, on a street in Dublin recently uh, by somebody who was just doing a survey using an iPad and it was about bus usage. He was taking his answers on the iPad, and I asked him you know, what he was doing with the data, and he, he stopped right there on 3G and showed me right there. Online, there's multiple people doing the survey in the city, and what the current status of the survey was. And wow. it was amazing to me. There, this, is, this is a workflow issue. There was no paper involved in any of this, and there may never be. Yeah, I can't make a prediction on the rim future, but it's going to change over time. Yeah, it's already changing. The question is what time frame. I think paper will be around for a while, but it will grow at a reduced rate. Right. It's funny though, if you think about it, technology really helped grow this industry by making it wide and easy for distribution of documents, and then easily printing them out. Yeah. Now technology is the same reason that we're using less paper and right. maybe maybe slowing down. Yeah. But, I, but I'm not worried about it over the next 10 years. Oh, good. So this is a question that often intrigues me because you've, you've now had a fairly long and storied history in the industry. And since 2004, when access sort of became a reality, with all you know today, with all of the experiences you've had in growing these businesses now, both access and Oasis, uh, as well as the experiences you had before that, if you could go back today to 2004 and give yourself some advice based on what you know today, what might you do differently? That's tough. Um, I'd, I would obviously change some single item decisions as everyone would know the future of something. In there. Yeah. You know, you'd you'd want to change you know, one bad move here or there, but I wouldn't change the overall strategy. I think the strategy is sound still, uh, building a quality company with quality people and providing quality service um, and having fun along the way. Yeah. And I think I've achieved all those. And I think that, you know, I don't think, first off, I would definitely do the industry again. And I definitely would keep the same strategy of how we grew it. I, you know, but you know, there's some private decisions I made that may not have been done right. again. But other than that, overall, the strategy would be sound. I wouldn't change it. Well, it, it's obviously proven itself. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, a, another leading person in the industry said that, that the rim industry is probably the second best industry in the world uh, in terms of overall value of the business and 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 the way it produces produces uh profits and those kind of things would you would you concur it, do you based on the fact that you've looked at a whole bunch of other businesses and potentially an investor in many other businesses do you still love this rim industry i do and i believe that was richard reese that said that yeah uh, older and wiser man than me and so he may 
know more industries. I'd love to know what he's not number one. I know. I, I think uh, <laughs> many of us do, but none of us have quite figured that one out yet. So. Well, I mean, you get a business-to-business, reoccurring revenue-modeled business with strong contracts. You always want to focus on that. Obviously, the rim business falls in there. Yeah. And it, I would say that from everything else I've looked at, there, there are obviously some other things that, that I do on the side, but uh, uh, this has been the most fun most rewarding for me. The only thing I'd rather do is own Bailcorp, and uh, since that didn't work out in my early career, uh, I've done RIM. <laughs> so if if this RIM thing hadn't worked out, what do you have another dream job? Do you have another job you would have loved to do? I think I just gave it away. I, uh, I went off to school to, for ski area management. Uh, my big passion in life is skiing, and that's what I wanted to do is, is continue running ski areas and uh, that's not as uh, rewarding financially as a business to be in these days, but uh, that was my passion. I, if I could have stayed in the ski industry, I probably would have forever. Wow. Well, Dennis, like I said, you, you are a mover and a shaker, and it's been a blast watching this thing emerge. I, I remember sitting with you, I, I think we met in Hawaii at one point, and I remember sitting and meeting you in San Diego at one point at a conference, and uh, watching you ever since then, it's been quite the journey. And uh, wow, you've done incredibly cool things. And so congratulations, first and foremost. And I can't wait to see where you go from here. So thanks for sharing it all with us. It's been, it's been great to hear your story. Well, thank you. And, uh, and I've enjoyed always seeing your presentations around the world. So uh, keep up the, the good work and uh, look forward to seeing you again soon. All right. Thanks. Good time. Take care, Tom. Wow, that was a really full of great ideas and uh, a real sense of understanding how Dennis has thought and, man, things that I know that you could use in your business and, and the way you manage and the way you you think about growth and development. It, so many good things coming out of that conversation I had with Dennis. So special re-thanks to Dennis for sharing his story and his perspectives. He's done pretty darn well for himself. Uh, he'll... As I said, at the start of the show, will be one of the CEOs I interview in Amsterdam in November at the European Information Management Conference. And thanks to you for joining us as well. I appreciate your presence here every week. I'm also incredibly thankful to O'Neill Software, who sponsor the show. O'Neill is committed to creating great software for your rim service business. But more than that, they keep pushing the envelope in the development of their products, both for what is required to today uh, but even more importantly, what will be happening in the industry tomorrow? And that's what O'Neill Cloud is all about. RIM software reimagined for a cloud-driven world. And you can learn more about it and them at O'NeillSoft.com. That's it for today. We'll be back next week with another great interview for you. Have a great week. We are out of here. Thanks for joining us on the RIM Pro Report with Tom Adams. If you enjoyed the show, please tell others. Our website is www.rimproreport.com. This broadcast is produced and hosted by Flourish Press Inc. Join us again soon.